On this episode... We thought that we would do the show as a February 14th, Valentine's Day love special because John and Yoko have this wonderful relationship. So that was very exciting. And Double Fantasy is a love album. And, of course, unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. From the coveted corner booth in a little bar in the center of the Coachella Valley universe, welcome to another big conversation with Patrick Evans and Randy Florence. Gentlemen. Welcome back to another edition of Big Conversations Little Bar. We record live right here at Skip Page's Little Bar, the center of the Coachella Valley Universe in Palm Desert, California. My name is Patrick Evans, and I'm joined by my stalwart and sturdy co-host, Mr. Randy Florence. Wow, that's a fantastic introduction. I've been working on it. It's only taken me 40 weeks to come up with I'm a little verklempt right now. Give me a second. (laughs) Um, Hey, as we record, you just came off a big week, Palm Springs Film Festival, and you got to talk to some pretty cool people. What was your favorite part of the red carpet? Uh, This year, I would say my interview with Paul Giamatti was my favorite. When he looked at you and said, yeah, man. That was just Paul Giamatti. I almost fell out of the chair. He was a very regular guy, and it was one of those, you know, when he walked up and I told him I was a really big fan, he was one of those people who, like, you could tell he genuinely appreciated that, uh, And even though he gets that every day. Uh, but we, you know, we had uh, Billie Eilish and, and uh, Phineas O'Connor, which was very cool. And when I told my kids, they were like, what? They were like, you actually talked to Billie Eilish? And so I have street cred with my children now, which is good. Uh, well, my granddaughters were really impressed that you were anywhere in the general vicinity of Greta Gerwig. Oh, we interviewed Greta. Oh, did you? Yes. I haven't even seen that interview. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we got to interview Greta um, and Emma Stone, uh, Mark Ruffalo. And uh, not everybody can say this. But Robert De Niro walked past me in a real huff. <laughs> so, I mean, I feel very privileged. <laughs> it's, you, be able, you can describe it as he a huff. Was, he was angry. He was late. He was irritated. Um, he, I will be honest. He looked a little old and a little frail. I was, I was worried about Mr. De Niro. But, uh, yes, he was. And, and he, he didn't quite. I don't think he can storm past people anymore. But uh, he, He's storming more slowly now, I would assume. <laughs> it was more of a squall. He squalled past us. <laughs> well, that was awesome. I, I, listen, every time I get to see you do that, it just, it's, it's thrilling for me. It was, and, it was a lot of fun. And it's really cool today because we're going to kind of continue on the theme of some entertainment here with, with today's guest. Um, and if I can, Patrick, I'm going to go ahead and make an introduction here. Yes, please. We have today author Lori Kay, and Lori is the author of a book that I just finished, and I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it, called Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper. Lori, welcome. Thank you, but I'm going to tell you that the actual title of my book is Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life leading up to John Lennon's last interview. There you go. So basically it's described as the story that's wrapped around that interview. And this is hours before murder, but this is a life story. It's my memoir. It's not a Beatles bio, like a lot of people <laughs> think or expect. It's, it's my memoir, and it's got everything from my early life and career wrapped around the music, rock radio music, which I love and worked in, and all the interviews that I was so thrilled to be able to do, and my life, which included 
plenty of sex and drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> well, well, let's, I don't... Start, let's start with the sex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lot older than you. Can we talk about the drugs? <laughs> Before I talk about the sex, I got to talk about the drugs. Uh, <laughs> sorry. One of the things, and, and we will obviously dig a little deeper into this, but I, I like the way that you structure this and you build up to that moment. And, and, and the cover of the book is you with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Yes, the picture was taken at the tail end of our interview, all four of us on the RKO team, and uh, and our our guy from um, Warner Brothers Geffen Records. We each took a picture with John and Yoko, and it was thrilling because we all felt like we'd become friends, and we all made plans to meet up just a couple weeks later in San Francisco, and. I only wish that we'd been able to do that. Well, we don't want to bury the lead here. <laughs> um, Lori did the last live interview with, with the team, with John Lennon, four hours before he was shot. Yes, shot and killed, sadly. And you, and you describe this, uh, you know, obviously you were thrilled to meet. He was, uh, you know, an icon and, uh, and someone that you couldn't wait to interview. And so it was the greatest day of your life and the worst day of your life. I mean, you lived the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, and then that is remarkable. And you had an encounter outside the Dakota building with the man who murdered John Lennon. I wouldn't call him a man. I'd call him a creep. And I never say his name, and I never print his name. And he was an a-hole. He was an a-hole to you, specifically, because he, he knew that you had had come from an interview. Right, and he kept asking, what'd you talk about? What'd you talk about? You know, and, and other creepy questions, and then followed me down the street, and oh, God, I, I just... I mean, that just horrible. gives, gives You talked in your book that you, you carried some guilt for a long time about not calling attention to that. that. That's a lot to carry. I still do carry the guilt. It sits on my shoulders and it has for over 43 years. Yeah. Why didn't I go to the security department at the Dakota and say, here's this guy, he's bugging people, you should get rid of him. And maybe they would have been able to, maybe they would have called the cops, maybe they would have looked closely at him and saw that he was carrying a gun in the pocket of his coat, mm. which I didn't. So, yes, of course, I feel guilty to this day. Let's step back. (laughs) We'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. But, Laurie, one of the things that I absolutely loved about your book, and I told you this, is I felt we lived kind of adjacent lives for a while. Uh, From the San Francisco Bay Area, you worked for one of my favorite radio stations, KFRC AM in San Francisco. Talk about how you got to there. Well, I started as an intern at KFRC. It was very exciting. I had just come back to the country, actually. I'd been living on the island of Bali in Indonesia, studying Balinese dance (laughs) for well over six months. It was very exciting. And came back and went to journalism school at UC Berkeley. And it was thrilling. I, I, I loved the idea of being there, but my main teacher, professor, right off the bat said, what are you doing in this class? You already know how to write. And so he told me, get an internship. You'll get a job right away. You don't have to sit here and finish your your studies. And I said, okay. And I went and I started looking for um, 
internships at, uh, you know, various newspapers, everything from New York Times to L.A. Times, you name it. And um, because it was already late and close to the summer, they were already booked for the summer. So there wasn't anything. But then I saw, wow, an internship available for the newsroom at KFRC. And even though I was barely familiar with the station because I just moved there, I thought, wow. I'd been told to be a radio person a long time ago. This is great. So I contacted them. I got the internship. It was their very first for the newsroom. And they loved me as much as I loved them right away. So after the internship, um, I had to wait a couple months. But then I got a full-time job there as a news editor. And because I really wanted to be on the air as a newscaster, um, I was told, well, you know, we're the number one station, so we can't put somebody on the air who's never been on the air before. So you'll have to go work somewhere else. And they helped me get jobs at top stations in the country, WOW Omaha, 50,000-watt station, huge. It was the one where Johnny Carson started out. Really? Yeah, really big station. And then I went from there to... King AM in Seattle, the number one uh, top 40 station there at the time. Talk a little bit about your experience in Omaha, though, because you're a California kid, and you (laughs) arrived in Omaha kind of in the teeth of winter. It wasn't just the teeth of winter. It was the worst winter in well over three decades. (laughs) And from the minute I got there, it snowed. It never stopped, not once in the five (laughs) weeks I was there. Fortunately, I only had to be there five weeks before Seattle King AM contacted me and said, yes, we really want you. So they liked me a lot. And I thought, okay, it's time to leave. (laughs) And the funny thing was, I get to Seattle and it's rain nonstop. So I went from snow to rain and then finally back to KFRC in San Francisco, which is a variety of great weather. And fog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that didn't bother me. <laughs> it's a lot better than snow and rain, certainly. One of the things that, that I also loved about the book was um, you describing as you were growing up kind of how you got y- your musical likes and some of the time that you spent doing something I was doing every day, which was dialing into radio stations for every single contest that they had, giving away tickets. Well, one thing I talk about um, in my book is that I started listening to music as a toddler because basically from the time I was born, I was raised by a dysfunctional family, a single mother who lived part of the time with my grandparents, and it was difficult for me. And so I immediately went to music and I was very lucky to get a transistor radio at a very very young age so all night every night I would put the earplugs in my ear listen to the radio it was amazing KHJ KRLA it, it was the best stations in the world and I was listening to everybody before the Beatles, including Little Richard and Elvis Presley, and you know, as a as a tiny little kid, thinking, "Wow, this is incredible!" And then when the Beatles hit, and I finally got to see them on the Ed Sullivan Show, that was amazing too. That was love, and <laughs> and made me listen to the radio even more because they concentrated on the Beatles pretty much more than anybody else. You know? You're talking about a period of time where music was going through a major transition. Rock and roll was, was just starting to come out and become popular. What was being listened to in your house before you started playing rock and roll? 
not rock and roll. <laughs> My mother was so not an Elvis Presley fan. She was the fan of only one person in the world, and that was Frank Sinatra. And as much as I realize, yes, he's valuable to a lot of people, he really wasn't to me because I didn't want to listen to him growing up. And my grandparents listened to basically musicals, which was more interesting to me. Mm. Uh, And um, so that's why, as I said, me and my transistor radio were best friends. Yeah, I had mine underneath the pillow. Yeah, I could just sit there and lay my head down and listen to the music until I fell asleep. Cool. I love those times. And AM radio sure provided us a lot of opportunities to do that. Absolutely. And another great band that I loved before the Beatles hit, Beach Boys. That just sent me the thought as a kid, I want to go to the beach all the time when I grow up. And I did. Now, I've described, um, as I was reading this book, I was trying to explain to my 12-year-old granddaughters (laughs) what it was like trying to call into a radio station contest back in those days. First of all, they had no clue what a rotary phone was, so I had to describe that to them. But literally, you'd have a couple of minutes to call in, you'd start dialing, instant busy signals, but you had some success early on on winning some of those contests. Talk about that. I did, because even though I didn't have my own phone in my own bedroom, once my mother had moved out from my grandparents' apartment and remarried, um, I was able to take the phone with the long cord from the living room into my bedroom um, (laughs) when my mother and her creepy husband weren't there. (laughs) And so what that meant was basically I did the bulk of my calling late at night. Like I would get up at 2 a.m. even on school days and call in and it was much easier to get through. (laughs) There weren't a lot of people trying to get through. So I was quite often the winner of things. What was the first one? Do you remember? Um, I won a a contest with some products and that was really cool. Like some... um, shampoo and, and things like that. It wasn't a year's worth of rice or anything like no, that. No, no. <laughs> but, um, but it was, it was uh, interesting things. And then I started winning albums. And when I won the Rolling Stones album, Exile on Main Street, that was like, wow, I'm so excited. And then, because I had been a winner of Exile on Main Street, I was automatically entered to win tickets to the Nicaragua Benefit at the forum Um, and that was amazing because I won Wow! they called my name you know out of hundreds of people's names they picked mine how old were you at this point I was uh, 17 wow so how did all of this kind of inform what you did in the future Did, did, did you just kind of lock into this is what I'm going to be well what happened was is I I was with my friend in his car, we cut school, and we were listening to the um, DJ picking the names out of the bag, and I thought, oh, please, please let them pick my name. And sure enough, I was the second name they called out, Lori Gay, you won the tickets. So my friend and I immediately drove to the radio station, and the most amazing thing happened. I thought I would just walk in and they would hand me the tickets and say, have a good time. I said, no, the disc jockey on the air wants to talk to you on the air. (laughs) So I got pulled into the DJ booth, B. Mitchell Reed, who was one of my favorite disc jockeys at the time. And 
also known as the Beamer, mm-hmm. um, said to me once he started asking my name and my age, wow, you have a great voice. You need to be on the radio. You should be on the air. And at that point in my head, I thought, he just gave me my career. Wow. And he did. So I owe it all to B. Mitchell Reed. Not a lot of people can look at a particular point in time and say that was it that's pretty cool Lori. that's pretty remarkable clarity yeah and it's it's amazing because you you're winning tickets to see the stones and it was an amazing show and we were in the front row and unfortunately there were opening acts and a lot of time till the stones came on but when they did it was super cool and there's picture in my book that my friend that i was with took and he was a great photographer how many intervening years from the time you were sitting in the front row of that concert until you got to interview Mick Jagger? Let's see. That was early 73, and I got to interview Mick Jagger in, I want to say, 79. Wow. 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 Yeah. So in a small six-year arc, you're a fan enjoying the music, and then you're actually doing an interview with Mick Jagger. And I told him. I told oh, him sure. Well, you have, of course you <laughs> yeah. had it. You also put him on hold so that he could hear your newscast. <laughs> yes, he was He was really cool about that and complimentary. <laughs> I think that's amazing. A lot of, a lot of celebs won't hang on through, a, you know, a hold. <laughs> I told him I would call him back, but he said, no, no, no. I'll, I'll hold on, you know. And it wasn't a long newscast. It was a short one, so... So you also, um, in your career, you kind of moved on. You you eventually ended up, um, I'm sure I've read some stuff that I thought was written by Dick Clark, but it might have been written by Lori Kay. If it was his weekly newspaper column, uh-huh. the years I was there, yes, it was. So talk about that. I wrote it as Dick Clark. I got to go to shows as though I were Dick Clark, <laughs> sit in the front row, including talking heads stop making sense shoot all three nights there i was in the front row and you interviewed them um well i interviewed them previous to that okay at kfrc um when they basically were first coming out the first album and that was exciting so seeing them years later filming their you know their movie that was amazing yeah That had to be quite a show. I mean, I've seen the show, but live, that had to be just incredible. All three nights. Amazing. Dick Clark sort of looms heavily over this podcast because we've had (laughs) a number of people who, at different times, uh, have have worked for Dick Clark and have done different things with Dick. Uh, My buddy Fred Bronson was on the podcast, and uh, he he wrote a... Ghost wrote Dick's book. Uh, he's been, he's well, because been, Dick asked me to ghostwrite a book too, but I instead <laughs> moved to New York. So, so it's a, a recurring theme. Uh, yeah, I think we ought to just get a hold of the Dick Clark Association and see who else I could send over since <laughs> we're already got that momentum going. Laurie, talk a little bit about after um, you moved out of the Dick Clark thing. Where did you move to then? Where did I move to? Oh, then I moved to New York okay. to um, start writing a TV show. And what was that? Um, it was a another countdown show, a video countdown show this time. And um, I did that for a while. And then I ended up leaving New York to come back to L.A. to do TV production. And, uh, and do, do you prefer behind the camera or in front of the camera? Um, actually, I love production. So, and 
have done that the most recent. So, you know, that's Talk about great. most recently what you've been working on. Uh, well, I've done a number of uh, docu-series pilots, CBS and Fox related. And unfortunately, the pandemic put an end to the idea that they would get picked up even mm. though they had been purchased already. So, uh, and that's, um, that and getting older has basically <laughs> done something to my production career, but that's okay. Cause I'm really busy with the book promotion and, and marketing and, and you've done work as a interviews. casting director as well, correct? Um, yes, I've done casting and locations and all that stuff. Talk a little bit about the casting work. Cause I find that fascinating. Like choosing who's going to get what role and well, the most fun casting that I did, and I've done a lot of it, um, has been, I would say, the cooking show I did. It called Flip My Food. And it was really fun because not only would, did I get to pick all the locations and line them up, including Elvis Presley's Graceland, which mm, was very cool. Wow. But also I casted uh, people who were guesting with with our uh, incredible show host, Chef Jeff Henderson, uh, also a New York Times bestseller, and um, and everybody from motorcycle riders because Chef Jeff was a motorcycle fan to um, women who were who were uh, uh, roller skaters to you name it. I just got to pick a lot of people for him, so it was it was great, and I had a lot of fun doing that. You have interviewed, um, besides the ones that we've already mentioned, uh, David Bowie, Grace Slick. Can you talk to us about some of the more interesting interview situations that you went through? I loved interviewing George Harrison. He was my first Beatles interview. He was wonderful, and he was superhuman. And, I mean, I loved all the Beatles. Were, were they pretty open and giving to you as an interviewer? Absolutely. And we all talked about, I mean, George Harrison, and then um, about six months later was Paul McCartney and Wings in London. That was amazing. And then uh, over a year uh after that, about a year and a half after that, was John and Yoko at the Dakota, New York. And one of the things I talked about with all of them was Elvis Presley and how sad it was that Elvis had passed because I knew they were all huge Elvis fans as teenagers and Beatles and still. And John was talking about recording Double Fantasy with Yoko and recording as Elvis in, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, and, and they were all very sad about Elvis passing. So yeah, Sure. Harrison was, he thought a little bit different. There was, there was a, certainly a spiritual bent about him. Did you pick up on that during the interview? Um, I did in terms of he had just gotten married and just had a kid and basically wanted to stay home. <laughs> <laughs> They'd pretty much had enough of it by then, hadn't they? The public and the screaming, and they were ready for a little more quiet. I, I think so. And, and of course, John had been a house husband for five years when I interviewed him as well. So that was a similarity. So let's get into this if we can. I, I mean, it was such an easy book to read, turning pages, just because I couldn't wait to see what was on the next page as you led us down this path. Right to being in that room at the Dakota. If you wouldn't mind, just 
kind of give us a little bit of an idea of how that came together and then walk us through that day. Well, our uh, Warner Brothers Geffen Records exec, uh, Bert Keen, uh, worked with Dave Sholin, who'd been the um, music director at KFRC and then for the RKO Network, um, to put together the interview. And we were the only U.S. radio team to interview John and Yoko following the release of Double Fantasy. They had a British interview, but nobody else in the U.S. So it was thrilling and exciting and just... I couldn't believe it. It's like, wow, I get to do this. This is amazing. How long in advance did you know? Um, A couple of months. Okay. But the thing was, the reason that I'm sure that we were picked is because my RKO team, Dave Sholin and Ron Hummel, our uh, engineer uh, producer, and I were the ones who had created RKO Presents the Beatles, the longest Beatles special ever done in the USA. Uh, Radio Beatles special. And then it went from 14 hours. Eventually we expanded it up to 17 hours. And it was syndicated. And I got to change the name to the title I had originally come up with, which is The Beatles from Liverpool to Legend. I love naming things. So that was very exciting. So I'm sure that's the reason that we were given the show. Um, And uh, the interview and the show to do afterwards. Um, And we were going to be doing the interview... And then we thought that we would do the show as a February 14th, Valentine's Day love special because John and Yoko had this wonderful relationship. So that was very exciting. And Double Fantasy is a love album. And, of course, unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. We ended up doing the show. I had to write it right after John got killed, and it aired six days afterwards. Wow. Tell me a little bit about what happened uh Obviously, you finished the interview with several hours before the assassination. You were obviously still nearby in the city. What happened? Well, I How should, did you find out first? I should mention that the uh, guys on our team all were going back to the West Coast that night. I was the only one staying in New York. And they were asked by Yoko, can you give us a ride to the um, recording studio because they're car and driver weren't available at the last minute. So when the guys got John and Yoko into our limo and they all drove away, I was standing there waving goodbye after hugging them and thinking, oh, I can't wait to see them again in two weeks. John and Yoko are going to be friends for life. And they drove away. And then the creepy guy starts bugging me right off the bat and I started walking away and that's when he started following me and trying to ask me questions and I wanted to turn around and swear at him and smack him in the face but I thought no I just got to get away don't want to get in trouble and I got away from him and as I mentioned before that was the guilt I feel after all this time and I went to my friend's office and we um, left for dinner after I told him all about the interview and how super cool it was. And you were on the super high, obviously, because oh. John Lennon had been your idol and you had a chance to sit down and, and I mean, spend really quality time with him and in their home. Absolutely. It was amazing. And um, although we did the interview in their private office. And, uh, and then my friend Dave and I went out to dinner and on our way back uh, to his 
apartment, he was telling me, oh, and just so you know, when I open the door, you'll hear the radio because I leave the radio on. So if somebody breaks in, they'll think I'm home and they'll leave. And so he opened the door when we got to the apartment and all of a sudden it was interrupted by a reporter saying, oh, John Lennon has been shot and he's in the Roosevelt Hospital. And I went, (gasps) and I immediately ran out to the middle of the street, grabbed a cab, went to the hospital. And the first thing I saw when I jumped out of the cab was through the big glass door of the hospital, Yoko holding on to somebody and crying hysterically. And I thought to myself, John hasn't just been shot. John has been fatally shot. And I wanted to go in and just comfort Yoko and I realized no I will just remind her of the day and what it led up to so I didn't and I before I started crying I went to the phone booth right outside and I called the RKO network in New York uh, and the the head of it was my former news director in San Francisco and I told her what happened and I said you'll probably hear that he's been shot but I'm pretty sure that he's been killed. And she said, get over here right away. And I went and I spent the entire night up there doing interviews. And of course, it was announced that he was shot and killed. And I did interviews with stations and newspapers and other places all over the country and also international. And then the next morning, without having slept at all, I was told oh, you've been booked on the Today Show. So I went on the Today Show, and then as soon as I could leave that, because that was a horrible experience, I flew back to San Francisco and started writing the show in my hotel room, and it was the hardest thing I've ever written. If you don't want to talk about it, it's fine, but I'm curious why the Today Show was a horrible experience. Um, It was just too much of me having to answer questions from the hosts and their questions were just not very good and I I just I I was just not comfortable at all well you hadn't had any sleep you were distraught yeah it's it's a horrible position to put somebody in in the first place so yeah I just felt bad and I just I just wanted to forget that it happened and pretend that it didn't. And, of course, I couldn't being there. So then you fly back and you have to write this show in the context of what had happened. And it was an entirely different show than what you had intended. Right. And so I had to Walk listen. us through that experience. Well, I had to listen to the entire interview, mm. which made me cry and write the show and dedicate it to Yoko which also made me very upset. And it was just the saddest thing because I knew that instead of a a show about their loving relationship airing on Valentine's Day, it would air the next Sunday, which was six days after John was shot on Monday, December 8th. Have you had uh, opportunities to talk to Yoko since then? Um, no, I have tried to contact her, but as I can totally understand 100%, I remind her of the worst day of her life. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that she's never gotten back in touch with me. Did you receive, did you have conversations with George or Ringo or Paul 
after that? Were, did they contact you to talk about the situation at all? No. 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 Nobody, nobody from our RKO team had any contact again. During like your that. interviews with the Beatles during that time and just before all of this, um, did you have any discussions with them about whether they had planned on getting back together? Well, I didn't really bring it up, especially not with John, because we were told before the John Lennon interview, you can't talk about the Beatles, mm. you can't ask about his past, nothing. Not the Lost Weekend, nothing like that. But fortunately, even though I knew that and only had questions together about his present life and double fantasy, John brought up the Beatles. John brought up Paul Cup McCartney, you know, all that sort of thing. And, um, and that was very cool. Um, but he didn't sound like he wanted to get back together because he wanted to perform with Yoko. He wanted to create with Yoko. And I got the same feeling from Paul as wanting to perform and create with Linda. Linda, yeah. Who, you know, had been in Wings for a while. Right. And that was exciting. And um, George didn't really want to go out and tour and, and record He wanted to be anyway. home. Yeah. yeah. So... That was pretty much what I well, expected. It's interesting, I think, when we look back at the Beatles, because we all feel so nostalgic about the music and where we were in our lives at the time. You know, we wanted that to go on forever. But artists often don't. The collaboration is great, and when it's done, they want to go on to other things. And not only that, but they all went on to other things incredibly yeah. They were amazing. George's solo stuff was amazing. Paul and Linda with wings. Wow. You know, some of their, those hits were so incredible. And then John Lennon and Imagine. I mean, that and everything beyond that, just incredible. Some of my favorite stuff that John Lennon did solo was rock and roll, where he covered all the great rock hits from the 50s that he loved so much and I loved so much, so it was incredible hearing him do that and I'll never forget. Well, it's interesting, you know, when you talk about Imagine, and you know, he started writing that song before the Beatles broke up, but it's not a song, I mean that could never have been done you know, in the context of the Beatles it had to be done as a solo piece but it's interesting to me that the, the origins of that song started while the Beatles were still together. Well, and not only that, what's very interesting is that when we interviewed him, he said, I should have credited Yoko Ono as the co-writer. It came from another because, source, didn't because it? Because Imagine was all about, from her book, Grapefruit. Right. So, and Yoko said, oh, well, that's okay. You know, you, you dedicated the album to me. <laughs> and John said, yeah, yeah, you know, and he... He, he was so funny during the interview. He had such a great sense of humor. And him and Yoko together, their loving relationship, it was amazing. Lori, this is something that um, I really found so fascinating about the book. It's probably safe to say that a lot of people in America after the breakup of the Beatles had, a, had different thoughts about Yoko than the person you ended up meeting. Talk to us about the Yoko that you, you met. She was fabulous. And when people say, oh, Yoko's the reason that the Beatles broke up, they're full of shit. Yeah. They don't know what they're talking about because obviously that's not the case. And Yoko's wonderful and creative and 
not a pop artist to begin with, obviously, a conceptual artist. And John liked that. I mean, you know, that's that's something that he was attracted to. And in the interview he did, he did some great impressions of Yoko and how she sang when they first recorded uh, Two Virgins and, and talked about their first meetup. And it was wonderful. I loved hearing all that. She didn't just appear out of thin air, though. She had a past. She... She had a past as an artist, right? Absolutely. And what was that? Um, both writing, as I mentioned, Grapefruit, right. which is the book I brought to the interview, my copy of it. And they were both so excited because they hadn't seen a copy in years. And John begged me, can I please autograph it along with Yoko? And I said, of course. <laughs> he said, yes, well, I wrote the introduction. It's okay if I autograph it? And I said, yes, please. And I was so thrilled. And when he did autograph it, I should tell this story, I thanked him profusely. And he said, oh, well, I'm happy to do it for you. And that's how I feel about when people give me books. I love it when they autograph them for me. And I said, Oh, well, then when I do my book, I'll send you an autographed copy. And he went, great. And I was so excited. And all I could think about ever since was, I'm going to write my book. I'm going to autograph John a copy and send it to him. When did you actually really start to write the book? Once the pandemic started. Okay. Because I suddenly had time because production stopped and I had time and interest to do something and it was very difficult it had taken me 40 years to start writing it um, and memories were hard to remember because I'm not a diary keeper it's not uh, like so you I didn't had have notes you didn't write down certain things that you knew you wanted to preserve I had to remember things and of course I had the interviews to listen to thank so goodness that's good yeah and the interviews that I did for print I was able to read those and uh, so it, it all worked out. I mean, I wish I remembered more, but, you know. Well, having the interviews, having the source material is, is, is such a, a blessing. And you were telling us in the audiobook, you actually use the audio from those interviews as opposed to reading those, those segments. From some, from ones that I had, because also in L.A., plenty of uh, earthquakes lost me tapes and uh, also moving up and down the country so many times. Uh, got things, boxes lost. And Were you like in that. L.A. for the Northridge quake? Uh, yes, I was. Yeah. Lose, lose some tapes in that one? I lost mostly tapes and mostly albums. Oh. My vinyl albums. It was just so maddening. Oh. You weren't in San Francisco in 89, were you? No. Oh, good. <laughs> I want to make sure you weren't just following major earthquakes around everywhere. No, happy to say I'm not. <laughs> so but. what are you working on now? What are we going to be able to look at next from you? Well, as I mentioned, I just finished the audiobook. Right. So that'll be the next thing out. And um, then I'll hopefully be doing some more print and maybe a second round of memoir. I'm not sure. We'll see. Because I did a lot of stuff from the 80s on. So, Well, just looking at the, the list of people that you've spoken to, I mean, there's got to be another book in there. Yeah, the, the process of, of um, doing the vocal for your own book, was that something that you had thought you wanted to do? Well, of course, as a newscaster <laughs> and an on-air radio person, every minute that I was recording, all I could do was think of B. Mitchell Reed saying, you got to be on the radio. So audiobook was 
just as good. All right. How long did it take to actually voice the audiobook? Well, I did it um, at my studio, and uh, I had to get time to do it with the producer who uh, who's in there mostly recording music all the time. So we had to work in between all that. So it took me months. Yeah, it's a, it's an arduous process. I have friends who do audiobooks, uh, and it's, it's an arduous process. Everybody thinks they can do it, but I don't think very many people yeah. can. And everybody thinks it's easy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a... It's, it's, a, it's more of a difficult process than people think. It's hard. You can't just read your book and say, oh, that's the audio book. <laughs> hey, I thought a podcast was going to be easy, and look what happened. Well, people <laughs> need to get this book. It's Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview. And uh, Lori Kay, uh, what an experience you've had throughout your life, and to have this seminal moment where you're sitting with John Lennon Within hours of his death, and uh, as you point out, it, it it was the the best and worst day of your life. And I still look at it that way. Absolutely. I'm sure you do. Yeah, I, I mean, it's the, the two moments are inseparable. And thank you for being as open and sharing it as you were. I mean, I'm you, you had to have told this story a lot of times to watch you as you were telling that story and to feel that emotion coming back from. 40-some years ago. That was pretty special. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Lori, it was wonderful to have you here today. Great. We are so excited. Thank you so much. Lori Kay, and again, the book, uh, it is called Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview. It is available wherever you buy books, correct? Yes, and also online. Go ahead. And also online at a number of uh, bookstore websites and Amazon and Barnes and Noble, you name it, it's there. So. And the audiobook will soon be available, so we encourage you to check it out. Lori Kay, thank you so much for spending the afternoon with us here on Big Conversations Little Bar. My pleasure. Thanks, Lori. Well, Randy was so excited when he met you, and I got text after text that says, <laughs> This is going to be great. We really have to have her on. And uh, he was exactly correct. Thank you so much. Yay. This is thank one you. of the few times I was right. This is awesome. <laughs> Don't get carried away. I won't. won't. Okay. Don't let it go to your head. Okay. (laughs) That wraps up this edition of Big Conversations Little Bar. Our thanks, as always, to Skip Page and his entire team here at Little Bar who take very, very good care of us. And our our thanks to John McMullen, our producer extraordinaire. We appreciate all that you do for us. And don't forget, there's merch available on the website. Everybody wants to have coffee out of their Big Conversations Little Bar coffee mug. So check it out at bigconversationslittlebar.com. My thanks to my co-host, Randy Florence. I'm Patrick Evans, and we'll be back again with another Big Conversation right here at Little Bar. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Big Conversations Little Bar. Recorded on location at Skip Page's Little Bar in Palm Desert, California, the center of the Coachella Valley universe. This program is a production of the Mutual Broadcasting System. All episodes are available from BigConversationsLittleBar.com or from most major podcast portals, including Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music.